Hello and welcome to this edition of Interpreting Classical Music. I'm Lou Smoley and I have some new and some old panelists with, with me today on a very special program, uh, which I think is unique to, to uh, this panel and this program itself. Let me introduce our panelists first, uh, Gene Gadette, uh, who is a record producer, uh, has his own company now, has a long history uh, in producing recordings, uh, rare recordings in particular. What's Im- important here is that Gene's going to take us through the the program, which is to, well, uh, to uh, give us an opportunity to sample a new series of recordings that he is producing uh, that uh, I don't think have been heard publicly. Uh, that is, these recordings have not been heard publicly uh, before. Well, ma- many of them have just been unavailable since the end of the 78 RPM era. Mm-hmm. These are uh, reproduction. Right. This is, this is a project that I've wanted to do for years. And finally, uh, I had the resources to start it a couple of years ago. The project started because I've always had an interest in historic recordings, but also in the music of Gustav Mahler. And it occurred to me uh, a couple of years ago that nobody had put together uh, a relatively uh, good anthology of Mahler recordings from the dawn of the recording era through roughly the beginning of World War II. And after doing the research, uh, I found that there, there were about eight hours worth of commercially made 78 RPM recordings. This does not count air checks in the uh, vaults of the BBC or Radio Nederland or or, uh, the New York Philharmonic. This is strictly commercial releases. And as I started to make calls to friends, other collectors, and other transfer engineers, basically we tracked down almost everything that we believe was commercially issued. I also consulted, of course, Peter Phillips' uh, massive discography of uh, the music of Mahler. Before we go on with that, I want to introduce the rest of our panel. Uh, you, you mentioned we in terms of this project, and I think part of the we is with us today. Yes. Sibylla yes. Werner, who is herself uh, a conductor, has conducted uh, throughout uh, Europe and in the United States as well. Uh, I'm going to have on the site, uh, by the way, full biographies of all three panelists. Uh, Jean's is already there, uh, and and, uh, Sibylla's, and our next guest as well, Joel Lazar, who himself is a conductor of of long-standing, I gather from a news release, the premier conductor in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Is is, uh, the music Principal conductor, I think it is, Joel? Yes, Principal of, conductor. of a, cha- a fine chamber orchestra, the Washington Sinfonietta, and a larger orchestra called the Symphony of the Potomac. Uh, and my involvement with Mahler goes back longer than I care to admit. Uh, well, uh, principally, uh, you uh, assisted Yasha Hornstein, one of the great Mahler interpreters, uh, in the few years before he passed. Yes, and uh, I was with him for a number of memorable Mahler performances. Uh, most important, I would say, the Third Symphony, which preceded the uh, Unicorn recording in 1970, and I was with him a- very actively involved in the production of Lied von der Erde for BBC Manchester. 
Now, Sibylla has also a long history with Mahler, uh, not only in performance. I, I think you've, you've done it. I know the first symphony, Sibylla. What well, other Mahler have you done? First, second, fourth, and sixth. As a matter of fact, I started with a sixth, which might be a <laughs> crazy thing to do, but I felt very close to it, and I did it. And, and as a musicologist uh, and, and a, a, an expert, uh, an analyst of Mahler's music. You've been working with the great biographer of Mahler, Henri-Louis de Lagrange, for some time now. Yes, I've been involved with Henri-Louis' work for about the past seven years, starting when he asked me to um, work with him on the appendices about the music for the fourth volume, so that was Symphony 9, 10 in Das Lied von der Erde. And since then, the involvement has been become even more involved in that... I'm now working with him on the revision of Volume 1, which is about 30 years out of date and which needs some serious updating. So I'm working with him for about four months every year now. We're certainly looking forward to, to that revised edition. So we have quite an expert group here uh, of Mahler performers, recorders, and, and the like. And uh, We're going to be switching back to Gene now because he's going to take us through this what is it, an eight-CD set you it's mentioned? an eight-CD set with recordings spanning the years 1903 to 1940. And I'm actually not going to start at the beginning. I'm going to start a little bit after the middle with uh, something that is representative of the arts and music scene uh, in the German-speaking world uh, about five years before everything began to fall apart when the Nazis came to power. And I'll just let everybody listen to it and uh, think about what they're listening to. What is this? Thank you. 
That was a recording by the Dole d'Albert Orchestra, the Dole d'Albert Orchestra, which was a salon orchestra, a dance band, uh, that was very prominent in the 1920s through the early 1930s. The conductor-slash-leader, uh, violinist Adolf Dauber, better known as Dole Dauber, uh, was a student of Carl Flesch and an enormously accomplished violinist who, uh, at the urging of the likes of Puccini and Lehar, uh, learned a lot of dance and waltz repertoire and went on to uh, an enormously successful career in popular music. But at this time, 1928, there was a, a real overlap in the German-speaking countries between what you would call popular and what you would call classical music. Dole Dauber doing an abbreviated version of the fourth movement of Das Lied in the same year that he conducted the premiere, the Austrian premiere, of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue in, uh, in the Musikverein of all places. Um, it's very, I think, indicative of a, a different sensibility towards art. And let's not forget that Mahler incorporated a lot of popular music slash music of the street, music of nature into his music. So this carries on very much from the, the aesthetic that Mahler was, uh, uh, that, that was so important to Mahler's entire oeuvre. Yeah, it also doesn't sound an awful, awful lot different from the Schoenberg uh, circle, uh, Erwin Stein reductions of the fourth and the like, in, in, my, in my opinion. It also says something, I think, about the actual, the permeating popularity of Mahler's music during this time and uh, of unexpected peaks in the, uh, in the popularity. Well, as a matter of fact, while I was work- working with Henri Lee, he asked me to look into the performance history of Mahler's works after his death, in the first 50 years after his death. And to mine and his astonishment, I unearthed thousands of performances that involved the work of Mahler. And Das Lied von der Erde was one of the most popular pre-World War II. I can document about 350 performances of Lied von der Erde prior to about 1938. And in Vienna, it was a party piece. You could hear it five, six times a year. Just so the audience will understand, there had been a, if the word mystique may be the right one, uh, surrounding Mahler, the performances of Mahler, say, after his death uh, and through World War II, that was presumed to almost be non-existent. Uh, and Sibylla, I think, is the first one to finally take the, the, the issue of, of that being a false presumption you know, to, uh, uh, to task and document uh, the very fact that Mahler was performed in an inordinate number of times during that time. Part, yes. part yes. of that perception comes from the comparative lack of recordings of music by Mahler during the pre-war era. But that, I believe more and more, is a matter of logistics. The large symphonies called for huge forces were twice as long as your average Mozart symphony. Uh, and were very demanding on the players, uh, very demanding on rehearsal time. It, uh, it was a matter of logistics and not commerce that I believe uh, held back Mahler from the recording studio with a couple of very important exceptions. The leader were relatively well represented. Certainly, I'd say, in proportion to the amount of music he wrote, Mahler is almost as well represented as, say, Hugo Wolf, uh, up until... Uh, HMV started their Hugo Wolf edition, and that really gave a push to his music. Uh, and again, that was because of the personal interest of producers at HMV who, who just adored Hugo Wolf 
On the other hand, there were also big fans of Mahler at HMV, which is why uh, toward the end, uh, toward, toward the pre-World War II recording era, late 1930s, suddenly Bruno Walter is doing major works of Mahler. Um, one artist who had, had not been in the studio to do Mahler until uh, the mid-30s, which is uh, something I find rather unusual. Uh, well, now, now that we've sort of had an overview of what's going on, let's go right back to the beginning, to the very first recording of any music by Mahler that was ever committed to disc. And you might not think it's Mahler, but give this a listen and make some, uh, forgive the sound a little. Keep in mind this was recorded in 1903. So sitzt ihr 
ein Mädchen, gleich Glut, einen Mann, Pilot. Pilot, einen Mann, la 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 That was Ein Mädchen Verloren, the uh, baritone aria from Act 3 of Weber's Die Drei Pintos, completed by Mahler. And in the case of the second and third acts of uh, Die Drei Pintos, Mahler actually composed the music based on a handful of themes that Weber had left behind. This is legitimately original music by Mahler. Uh, There are a few things to put the recording in context that uh, can be noted. First is the announcement of Grammophon Aufnahme at the beginning, a gramophone recording. Uh, By gramophone, they were referring to the company, not the technology, which was Gramophone and Typewriter Company. There is a good chance that this particular recording was made by one of the pioneers of commercial recording, Fred Geisberg's producer. And at the time in 1903, there were almost no dedicated recording studios. There's a good chance this was recorded in a nice apartment or a hotel room directly into a portable wax disc recorder. The waxes were then sent off to be electroplated, and out of those electroplates were stamped uh, shellac copies of the recording. The technology was very primitive. The fact is that this was three or four years into the commercial recording era. Prior to around 1899, the only place you could really find recordings were in uh, arcades. I mean, in the re- we're recording this program in downtown New York City. Just a few blocks from here were strings of arcades during the 1890s that w- where you would, in which you would plunk a nickel into a machine, put on a pair of tube phones, and listen to a cylinder recording of a band or, uh, shall we say, uh, racially, politically incorrect songs. <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was a real pioneering effort that was started in America by Eldridge Johnson uh, to make the gramophone a home instrument. Edison laid the technological ground with his first manually cranked wax cylinder recordings, but it took about 26 years for the technology to to develop to the point where recordings could be listenable. Uh, There's a good chance with this recording that Demut, who was one of uh, Mahler's singers, by the way, was singing directly into the recording horn with a piano of questionable provenance a few feet behind him being played at uh, between mezzo forte and fortissimo so that something would make it onto the wax. This was a very difficult technology, but when the recordings are restored to this point as Ward Marston, who restored the first five CDs worth of music in this set, has done, it's revelatory. You, you get a sense for... Uh, the style of singing, and you can hang on Demut's every word. The diction and the drama is all there. And this is 1903. 
Well, as you just mentioned briefly, he was one of Mahler's singers. As a matter of fact, they were almost contemporaries. You know, born, uh, he was born just a year later and died just before Mahler. And it was Mahler who brought him to the Hof Oper in 1898. He really wanted him and he worked with him all this time. So I'm sure if we want to have any glimpse into uh, what Mahler wanted out of a singer, this is what we get right here. It's also worth listening to the difference between the acoustic and the electrical technology. At around the time that Oscar Fried made his recording of Mahler's Second Symphony, which we're going to get to shortly, some interesting experiments were going on just over the river in New Jersey. Bell Laboratories was experimenting with something that they felt would greatly improve the sound quality of recordings. Acoustic recordings don't pick up bass very well, and their high-frequency response is very limited. The top four octaves are sometimes inaudible. You can hardly hear sibilance on most early and even a lot of late acoustic recordings if there's a singer. So they were running telephone lines to Carnegie Hall when the New York Philharmonic was performing from December 1923 through around April and May of 1924. They had rigged up a device that would amplify the signal from the telephone line, which was coming straight from the broadcast mic. The New York Philharmonic was in their second year of broadcast recordings. Pass it through the amplifier. Put it into this device that cut the groove into a wax disc electrically using a lot of horsepower. They would then uh, make a metal electroplate of the disc, and a handful of those are now in the New York Philharmonic archives. The sound quality was simply stunning. Victor Records, they, they listened to it at Bell Labs, and they were kind of dithering until they started to see that their sales figures really hit the wall in 1924. And they kind of panicked and decided, we need something to, to beef up our public image. So they went with electrical recording, but the truth is Columbia in the U.S. also did a deal with Bell Labs' commercial uh, department, Western Electric, and they were actually the first to make uh, electrical recordings in the U.S. Just to mention, uh, for those who are not familiar with the Oscar Fried recording we just heard a part of, this was the first complete Mahler recording of the Second Symphony, uh, made, or at least completed, is that fair to completed say? Completed in, in 1924. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I know that, that Sibylla wanted to say something about the performance or the recording. Saying, this is the first recording of any Mahler symphony, that's just yeah. the second. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And Fried was rather close to Mahler at one point anyhow. Mm -hmm. Yes, Fried met Mahler in Vienna when he had one of his own works performed. And as a fact, when they first met, um, Fried was furious at the way Schalk was conducting his piece, and he held Mahler responsible. Mahler said, what, what do I have to do with it? He said, well, you hired him. So <laughs> uh, then Mahler said, okay, he's going to be a conductor. So they became friends, and Mahler had, um, Fried had very little experience, as a matter of fact. But Mahler entrusted him with the performance of the Second Symphony in Berlin. So Fried was uh, preparing it, and then when Mahler finally got there um, towards the performance and listened what Fried had done, saying, but everything discussed, the tempos are all wrong, and this was after the dress rehearsal. So Fried and Mahler had this big conference, and um, Fried then went in front of the orchestra before the performance, saying, gentlemen, please disregard everything we've rehearsed. All the tempos are going to be different. Let's go. <laughs> uh, Fried 
conducted a lot of Mahler, of course, during, during his lifetime. You've, you've uh, established that. What's also fascinating in the recording industry is that while the, this is rather late in the acoustic era, as it were, uh, but the, the disco- acoustic discography shows an enormous number of the large-scale works of Richard Strauss, including the Alpine Symphony and, uh, and uh, all the other big tone poems uh, recorded at some point in the 20s. Uh, I've never heard any of these. There is a conductor I'm very interested in, Mirica, who was a distant relative of the uh, of the poets, uh, who made a lot of these, uh, as well as a lot of other uh, orchestral repertoire, and died in a flu epidemic relatively young in the mid-30s. And some of his uh, work has been on LP transferred in, in maybe uh, in the late 60s or early 70s available, but I have never heard any of it. It would be very interesting. Well, you mentioned that Fried was doing a lot of Mahler. I mean, this first performance of Mahler II was done in 1905, so this was still what we have now, what we just listened to was 20 years after. But what he's also known for that uh, in the Mahler anniversary years of 2021, he did a complete Mahler cycle in Vienna. We all talk about the Mahler Fest in Amsterdam, where there was a Mahler cycle in Vienna, there was a Mahler cycle in Wiesbaden, there was a Mahler cycle in Berlin which uh, Klaus Pringsheim did. So a lot of Mahler was playing, being played during those years. And Fried, of course, then also went into the Soviet Union and brought Mahler to the Soviet Union. Uh, one thing that, that struck me, and I think, Sibylla, you, you suggested as such, is the, is the tempo of the movement we heard, which seemed rather sluggish. Uh, and uh, you would just wonder whether Fried... So you wonder whether that was Fried's original conception of the piece or whether that was what Mahler had corrected. As I said, this was 20 years after he had talked to Mahler about it. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps even related to the tempo that one would take if it were the song. Because it, yes. if you listen to it and think of the words, mm-hmm. the tempo makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Slower but very good. It's, it's worth pointing out also at this point that... Uh, Orchestras were not recorded very much in the in the early part of the acoustic era. The first, for example, the first complete recording of a Beethoven symphony was made in 1910 by what was called the Odeon Grosses Orchester, which I believe is a Berlin-based pickup orchestra. It might even have been one of the uh, one of the bigger orchestras in Berlin, conducted by Friedrich Karch. This was some years before the famous Nikisch recording, and in both cases, you can hear that. It's not really a full orchestra. You could fit no more than 40 or 50 players in most of the good recording studios. When I was at RCA, I got a chance to look at the recording ledgers for Mengelberg's early recordings with the New York Philharmonic, which were acoustic recordings. There were no more than 40 players on any given uh, recording session. And in order to do those recording sessions, you had to put the strings close up to the horn. You generally had the, the brass further back. Percussion were always problematic to record, so you had, it, it was, for the most part, uh, trial and error to get a good sound from a timpani or a rute, the, the tapping stick sound that you hear in the, in the third movement of, of uh, the Mauer second. Uh, and the string string players were also not playing on their usual instruments. It was more common to play on something called a stroh violin, which, if you look at it, looks like some kind of bizarre mutant between a string instrument and a trumpet. In fact, when you play a stroh violin, you're you're not playing into a normal uh, a normal bridge. You're playing into an acoustic resonator, which 
basically amplifies the uh, amplifies the sound through the horn, so it plays about four times as loud as a conventional violin. It's now at this point. Let's skip ahead twelve years and listen to the very same movement. Uh, this time played by the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra and a young, very promising conductor.
The young conductor in question, Eugene Normandy, who would go on to a little bit more fame in the music industry in the following years. The recording was made in 1935, and like a number of large-scale projects that were undertaken by Victor Records in the 30s, this was recorded live. The other thing was that the the orchestra uh, at that time and for quite a while later, uh, had a very, a very interesting master agreement uh, which permitted either studio recording or live recording as counting towards the orchestra's basic service load. You, you, you didn't get an extra elect- electronic fee or, uh, or studio fee or recording fee for it. And so uh, this was, uh, this is already recorded um, the Bruckner 7th uh, at around that time. What strikes me about this performance, of course, uh, is that it's very much a modern concept of the piece. And Normandy, you know, grew, he's, grew up, he was born in 1899, he grew up in, in pre-World War I Austro-Hungary, and by this point he's conducting Mahler in a very, uh, what we would say, a very, a very modern style. And if you listen to other movements of the performance, where there's more sustained playing, you'll hear the characteristic st- string portamento uh, of the day, which is the way he, as a violinist, learned to play, too. Uh, but um, there's a big change uh, in terms of uh, an approach to uh, orchestral playing. We can even hear Warmondy as a violinist nowadays, because there was a set of uh, two or three CDs that contain uh, his salon orchestra performances <laughs> that he did long before uh, he became a major professional conductor, uh, where he leads them with his violin playing, and, and that that's kind of fun. Sort of a parallel with uh, Dole Tauber. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When he first came to New York, he got a job in the Capitol Theater Orchestra. Mm-hmm. He started us in the back of the second violin section, so to speak, and within a week he was the concertmaster. And they actually played movements from symphonies. He might have played some Mahler you know, at that point. But this was actually, the second symphony was the first one he conducted, and one of the few he ever conducted. He conducted the first, the second, um, Lied von der Erde, Kinder Totenlieder, but not a lot of the other symphonies. So the second was the first Mahler symphony that we know of that he conducted in, in Minneapolis. Actually, he had done it the year before. This was the second time he did it. And then he did it again very soon after that in Philadelphia. Very but, different performance. Yeah, but this was his first exposure as a Mahler conductor. Let's skip to another conductor who's seen, as very, mu- uh, seen very much as a, a modern and modernizing uh, influence. Um, we're going to hear the Fourth song from Kindertotenlieder with baritone Heinrich Reikamper 
and the Berlin State Opera Orchestra conducted by Yasha Hornstein. Well, this is a, a, a fascinating performance. I mean, for the, vo- for the bo- vocal buffs, obviously the use of a kind of wah-mixed uh, 
par- partially falsetto on the high notes is just is, it's not the way we sing now but it's so beautiful and so so effortlessly done and so unselfconsciously done and I think this is the point about historical Mahler is that it's not historical in its time it's the way they played the string portamenti which are um, sound different to modern ears sounded perfectly normal uh, in in those times i asked hornstein about that once i said do you have you ever tried to suggest that a modern orchestra use that he recoiled in horror and said my god no it would be the effect would be somewhere between comical and grotesque and it would sound like the big string glisses in la valse you know and uh, uh when i was young orchestras played that way and uh, and now they don't and uh there are times where I, I might ask for warmer or, co- or cooler playing. I am, after all, uh, once a violinist, and, but I would never dream of, of trying to uh, resuscitate that sort of thing. He said, besides, orchestras play so much better now. They play better in tune. And, for, and, of, and he said, and of course, they've had experience with this repertoire uh, from, you know, from, the, uh, from recent days on. And uh, he said, I can't imagine that... Uh, his opposite number in Vienna in the 1920s played the trombone solos any better in the Third Symphony than Dennis Wick did for the, for the London Symphony, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is interesting because people, especially with the, the attempt to re- revive an allegedly historical style of vibrato, that or sense of vibrato, Hornstein was a violinist. He never commented on the alleged absence of vibrato in the, in the 20s. My other major teacher, also a great Mahlerian, Richard Bergen, concertmaster of the Boston Symphony for 42 years, never, never said to me, well, when I first came there from, with Monteux, we played sense of vibrato, and then, <laughs> and then et cetera, et cetera. He, well, of course, he was a, he was a student of, uh, from the hour uh, tradition, and so the Russians are different from the Germans, but it didn't matter. I mean, violinists have always vibrated. That's it's ironic that uh, portamentos becoming, you know, more popular. That uh, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of conductors are, are suggesting it. Players are doing it. The problem is, if you listen to more contemporaneous styles or these early recordings, which which do it so well, so naturally in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it's not at all the same. Uh, I don't even think a lot of these conductors knew, know precisely how to deal with it. Uh, one perfect example, it's not connected with, with what we're listening to right now, but uh, in the uh, Cook edition of the 10th uh, at the end of the symphony, uh, there's a, a long, I don't know what the interval is, uh, 9th yeah, or 10th, yeah. long upsurge portamento, uh, and um, uh, Mark Wigglesworth conducted it in, in uh, Amsterdam during revival of the old 20s festival this was in the 90s and took that portamento so slowly that it was just seething <laughs> uh, and, and um, admitted later maybe it was a little too much but it, it just indicated to me how little uh, con- conductors today understand how to do it if you're going to do it you have to know what you're doing and how you oh, do it. As Joel said, it's not the style anymore. Now it's something that you put on top, yes. whereas before it was an organic component of people's playing. Mm-hmm. And also, coming back to the point of vibrato, thanks to Bill Malloch, we have these interviews with people who have played under Mahler, and he interviewed, I forget the name now, Violis from the New York Philharmonic, and he said, Mahler always asks us for more vibrato. Mm-hmm. And speaking of uh, portamento and vibrato... Let's give a listen to part of a recording of the Adagietto from Symphony No. 5. 
That was the Concertgebouw Orchestra conducted by Willem Mengelberg, recorded in May 1926, the first electrical recording of music by Gustav Mahler. Now let's hear a different performance from 12 years later.
Well, the most striking thing, of course, about the Mengelberg performance, besides the tempo, which, if you're used to the funereal pace of so many modern performances, is the fact, the enormous amount of portamento, and the fact that it is unison. It's executed in perfect unison. We know for a fact that Mengelberg rehearsed this kind of stuff. If you don't believe it off his recordings, uh, you can uh, read what Bernard Shore, the founding principal violist of the BBC Symphony, who wrote two absolutely priceless memoirs of his orchestral experience, um, which talk about all the great conductors of that era, Toscanini, Mengelberg, Fortwängler, etc., and uh, Adrian Bolt. uh, And the thing about uh, Mengelberg was that he rehearsed everything, including the uh, the strings to play portamenti and uh, and shifts in in unison. Uh, what's amazing about the second performance, the Bruno Walter one, is that for Vienna of the period, the, I hear one faintly audible position shift and virtually nothing else. Also, of course, uh, somewhat less vibrato. And this is quite a contrast coming from two conductors who were so closely associated personally with Gustav Mahler. Yes, I mean, Mahler was in Amsterdam working with Mengelberg closely um, for several symphonies, and uh, Mengelberg even then just did those symphonies, the fourth, um, I believe was the seventh Kindertotenlieder, and Mengelberg was the one who actually performed most Mahler pre-war because, for one thing, he was a symphonic conductor. He was not working in the opera house as Bruno Walter as Kampro were, so he amassed a tremendous amount of Mahler performances, somewhere between three and 400, before you know, it all stopped in 1940. What I find also uh, very, very interesting, and over, you know, over the years as a, a listener to Mahler and uh, someone who had sought out whatever I could get in terms of authenticity, the degree to which in Mahler as well as in all other repertoires, the conductors who had been involved with Mahler let their own personalities and their own characteristics as interpreters override whatever authentic lessons they they learned. Uh, Bruno Walter had a, a reputation in the interwar years of being the real speed demon. I mean, the stories about his Wagner Ring performances are, are, are legendary, uh, to, which you can get a, a glimpse of from the famous recording of uh, Act One of Valkyra. Uh, the, there were letters from... Uh, from Alma Mahler to people like Arnold Schoenberg, but well, Walter conducted Girl Eater, you have no idea how fast it all went by, and th- things like that. And uh, I think the characteristics of these people, Klemper as well, and, and, and Mengelberg, uh, which are seen, let us say, in their Beethoven and Brahms, uh, replicate themselves within a, in, you know, transmuted because of their, their common root in an authenticity of practice. But they do replicate themselves in uh, in their performances of Mahler to an extraordinary degree. You also get a sense of tempo being not that different between Walter and, and Mengelberg, which is, a, in a sense, a surprise. You might expect difference, but yet uh, it could very well be this uh, more traditional approach to tempo in general uh, coming out of the, that, that post-World War One period. Well, it is marked adagietto, not adagissimo. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not marked Adagio. That's the title. Oh, that's the title. <laughs> Excuse me. I, uh, this is a big problem uh, uh, that yeah. we had uh, yes. in, in terms of interpretation and, and just eyesight. 
Okay, I, I take that back. Yes, it, it is ahead, not the tempo mean. marking, but it is an adagietto, not a whatever know. that means. Yes, yes. well, small <laughs> adagio. Yeah. Well, Mahler himself practically studied the fifth under Mahler. I mean, Mengelberg studied the fifth under Mahler. He was there when Mahler performed it. He took extensive notes, which you can still see in his score, which is mm -hmm. at the Mengelberg Stichting. And the interesting thing between Mengelberg and Bruno Walter, of course, they both claimed to be the authentic heir of Mahler, and mm -hmm. they were so different in their interpretations. Mm -hmm. And after Mengelberg, it is Walter who did the most Mahler performances, especially in that era. And Klemper, not so much. He came in later, but uh, it was me mostly Mengelberg and Walter who we have so kept many. Mahler going. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mahler fourths, for example, air checks from uh, either radio orchestra performances or, or, or live performances that we probably would have been better off doing without. Some of them are atrocious, but mm. that's for another time. Gene? Well, one, one thing that I thought I might be setting out to do with the set was to investigate the authentic Mahler tradition. I believe that after you give a listen to everything in the set, you will come to believe that there are multiple Mahler traditions, or perhaps even no Mahler tradition. There are, however, artists who are passionate about conveying the music in as intimate and as powerful a way as they are able. And an example of this is one that we're not going to play, and this will give people incentive to maybe go and download or buy the recording when it's available in a couple of months. And that is Mengelberg's recording with the New York Philharmonic of Mahler's transcription of Bach's aria, the air on the G-string. And it is so filled with romantic ardor and plenty of portamentos, lots of rubato. But if you listen to Mengelberg's air checks of Bach made uh, about a decade later with the Concertgebouw Orchestra, his approach to that Bach is much more restrained. Yes, there's still portamento, there's still rubato, but it's not as openly romantic as Mahler's version of Bach. And I think, I think that that recording in particular is very revelatory of the direction that Mengelberg as a conductor was taking. If this is Mahler's Bach, it's Mahler's Bach. However, if it's a cantata with Mac Harrell and the Concertgebouw Orchestra, it sounds more Baroque. I think this is, a, this is also a, the legitimate response to transcription because you have to play, to be authentic about it, you have to play the transcription in the manner of the transcriber. That is to say, if you play Bach-Stakowski, you play Bach-Schoenberg or, uh, or Bach-Webern, uh, it's got to be done the way uh, that arranger would have conducted or would have expected it to be conducted in, in his or her lifetime to, to, try to, to try to put correct Baroque trills, let us say, in the Hamilton Hardy water music suite is, is pretty funny. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I tried it once. I promise you it doesn't work. <laughs> One of the great things that I learned in, in listening to all of this music is that there are are more than one way, uh, there, there's more than one way to uh, approach uh, Mahler's leader. And my favorite track in the entire set is probably uh, the one that will jar people who are interested in total authenticity to Mahler, and it's a recording from the Rookert leader. Thank you. 
That was tenor Charles Coleman with an orchestra conducted by Sir Malcolm Sargent, Ich hat mit einer Lindenduft, sung in English. This is, of course, sung at a, a higher pitch than the, than the, the mezzo or baritone version. It sounds like it's, what, up about a minor third or so. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's curious, goes, oh, Coleman sang, sang so much Mahler on the continent, and mm-hmm. um, Sargent conducted virtually no Mahler that we can demonstrate, as far as we can tell. Uh, the only thing I could demonstrate was through the BBC's wonderful Proms archives online that he had done during the 60, 61 anniversary years, uh, the Rukert leader and the Kindertoten leader. Mahler symphonies, such as there were during his tenure as Proms conductor, were conducted, uh, were conducted by others. And Coleman, of course, you know, did Das Lied von der Erde with Metropolis and with Rodzinski. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go to the very end of the set. We're going to hear a little bit of the finale of Mahler's first symphony with the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra conducted by Dimitri Mitropoulos.
That was the last recording of music by Gustav Mahler, the last commercial recording made prior to World War II. The next recordings of music by Gustav Mahler would be made after the war ended. Any comments? Yeah, a useful point to make about the diffusion of Mahler, and this is one which has been made countless times uh, since the you know since the 1950s, is that the real diffusion uh, and, and popularization uh, outside the concert hall has relied on the long playing record and eventually stereophony and quad and heaven knows what else the, the latest thing around the corner uh, both because both in terms of portability uh, I mean the, the 78 RPM set of of Ormandy's Mahler second occupied uh, how many pounds mm-hmm. in, of weight and how many inches on your library shelf as opposed to the uh, 12 discs uh, 12 discs at least yes and uh, and uh, it will fit very nicely if you get a fairly quick performance uh, on one somewhat cramped CD or two, or on a on a, um, on a memory stick, or one fra- infinitesimal fraction of your of your um, uh, MP3 player, uh, and it will sound an awful lot better. The physical impact of the music would have been enormously diminished for home listeners, uh, and it really be- emerges now. Uh, in, in it's a, it's a cliche, but it's it's quite true. So much so much spatial stuff, which which has to be uh, has to be heard, and such a, a wide dynamic range. Well, what I wanted to add about Metropolis that he was one of the driving forces behind Mahler in post-war United States. He had started very early. He conducted the first symphony first in 1925 with the Athens Conservatory Orchestra. Well, who knows what that sounded like? He did it again in 1930. But it was the first Mahler, uh, the first Mahler he did at his premiere in Boston in 1936. He did it in Minneapolis in 1938, which was the second concert he was doing. He was going to do his premiere with it, and they persuaded him to do it in the second concert. He did the Mahler first for his premiere with the New York Philharmonic, and he kept it with that orchestra. Between him and Bruno Walter, those two, I think, were really the driving forces on keeping Mahler alive in the United States. And then, of course, you know, with Bernstein working in as a co-conductor, and then the two of them doing the anniversary performances together in 1960-61, it was a kind of a seamless transition there. The, the irony is that uh, many people had their first, at least recorded, experience with Mahler through this recording, uh, as uh, some others did uh, with the second and Walter. Uh, myself included, but uh, when I first heard the Metropolis, Minneapolis, he was on a Columbia Special Products LP <laughs> that was egregiously d- recorded. Uh, there was almost no music going on. I mean, it was a mess. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in, the, in the first volume of, of the, my book of reviews, I, I had to treat it the way I heard it. Uh, which is a pity because I had never heard the the uh, original discs, only this reproduction. Uh, and when it came to uh, the second edition, uh, I changed my review altogether because at that time I think it was Bidolf mm-hmm. put, put out a, a a much cleaner recording. But I suspect when I hear the whole of this one, mm-hmm. I'll even be more uh, happy with it because it, w- it really was a fine performance. Columbia was experimenting with using large acetates and then transcribing those acetates to 78s and even uh, early LPs. They were, their early LPs were primarily done 
from transcription disc sources. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the reason that that early Mahler first sounded uh, pretty egregious. The fact is, the transcription discs at that time were reasonably good, but not great. There is distortion. In this particular remastering, there had to be a little bit of speed correction, because sometimes the speed during the disc would either go up just less than an eighth of a tone, but it was it was noticeable. So it's been brought down to the proper uh, to to the proper pitch of the Minneapolis Symphony at that time. That was the the one big big thing about this particular transfer. We've tried to get the speed correct, and we tried to get the sound right. The um, it's also worth noting that of all the recordings in this set, I think this is the one that you could characterize as the most white hot performance of uh, of Mahler. And it's indicative of uh, the atmosphere uh, of American Mahler performances during going into the 40s. Music and Arts recently issued uh, a two-disc set of 1942 performances of the Mahler first and second with Bruno Walter, and they sound nothing mm-hmm. like the later stereo recordings. The second is, again, just a white-hot performance, keeping in mind that it was three months after Pearl Harbor was attacked and the the war effort was already gearing up. It is a, an enormously emotional performance, as is the Mahler first that happened later that year. So there is a good chance that those who were listening to Mahler during the 40s in the United States were getting a much different picture of the composer than were the European audiences who were listening to recordings or going to concerts during the 20s and 30s based on the evidence that we now have. But when I get to the second big box set of of the 78s, which will go from 1945 to around 1951, that will be noted because the performances are, the interpretive approach is noticeably more, uh, how can I put it, uh, extrovert. Hmm. We look forward to that. Uh, that will hopefully be out toward the end of next year. I thought that uh, you might give us an opportunity uh, to hear some of the other music, Van Mahler, that you've recorded on the Urlicht label, uh, and uh, I'll leave that uh, to your good self. Well, the second recording I put out is titled Songs for Mahler in the Absence of Words, and it's based on a concert that the New York Piano Quartet gave at the New York Chamber Music Festival in 2012. Um, Certainly the Maurer Piano Quartet is there. Schnitke's notorious realization of the the scherzo is there. But there's also a realization of the scherzo uh, in which French-based composer and scholar uh, Enguerrand Friedrich Lull makes an attempt at copying Maurer's very early style. I don't know if it's entirely successful, but I think he, he gives you a good idea of what the piece might have sounded like if Maurer completed the work. And here it is. Judge for yourself.
Keep in mind that the original piano quartet was the earliest surviving work of Gustav Mahler. It is, it, it is Juvenalia. Well, unfortunately, we don't have other things. I mean, we know there has been a whole string quartet mm. that he submitted to a competition in St. Petersburg, and then it got lost. And Alabarsova has gone through the conservatory archives looking for a string quartet in A minor that could remotely be Mahler, but... So far, we haven't found it. And there was a violin sonata that he performed. There was a viola sonata. Uh, and one of those was given a prize. Uh, not, not the big Beethoven prize. I thought that there was one that had been given a prize that we don't have. None? Nope. There were, there were movements. And it was uh, the practice at that time to, you know, for the competitions at the conservatory to submit movements. So there was a movement of a piano quintet. Um, that he performed as a quartet, you know, in, in Eklo, actually, they didn't have uh, you know, enough people, so they probably left out the cello part and put that in the piano card. It was a piano quintet with you know, Krzyzanowski playing. Um, so there are a couple of things where he won prizes for a movement of, but there were, you know, chamber, chamber music versions. But there was a violin sonata, which we know has been performed, was reviewed in the press in Eklo, and, you know, violinists would love to have the Mahler Sonata, mm -hmm. but it's at least for the lost moment. someplace. Yes. It's like these, the half dozen Brahms string quartets, which Tovey insisted he got rid of before, not to mention the, the early Brahms Violin Sonata, played with him and Joachim repeatedly, and then mm -hmm. not only he wouldn't publish it, but it vanished. But even with Mahler, yes. uh, Mengelberg mm -hmm. claimed there were four early oh, symphonies, Oh, yeah. Right? Which is uh, probably yes, Nordic symphony. There was the overture the, to the Argonauten, which he uh, submitted for the Beethoven Prize, which they noted down the theme. That record has also disappeared. Mm -hmm. You can find it in uh, some very early publications. Hmm. Um, but Mahler himself, I think, destroyed a lot of these early works. Um, Trompeter von Säckingen, he had somebody look at it when he was in Leipzig, and then he said, but, you know, please you know, destroy it after you, you've looked at it. And this person also noted that it had some very uh, strong similarities to the theme from Blumina. So, but it's not exactly, but it's, you know, but he wanted to destroy it. It's always just, just a piece that I put together in two days very quickly. I don't want that to survive and be judged on that. But you know, what's interesting, forgetting about Mahler's juvenilia, uh, is how many modern composers are using Mahler material. Not necessarily directly... Uh, by way of quotation, but by inference, if, if you will. Uh, this, this fellow Silvestro, for example, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's his fifth symphony that, that sounds like uh, the, the, the uh, final adagio from the ninth, go gone on forever. Uh, but it, it, it's an interesting. Uh, it's not surprising because Mahler's so popular, mm -hmm. but popular also among composers uh, who... Uh, you know, utilize his music for their own ends. Mm -hmm. Olga Neuwert, mm -hmm. she's strongly mm -hmm. influenced by Mahler. Yeah, as a matter of fact, once Boulez did a, a program of this piece by Olga Neuwert that was strongly influenced by Mahler, it lasted about 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Intermission, Mahler 6. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> program lasted two hours and 40 minutes. Yes. Well, the, the rest of the, the CD, Songs for Mahler in the Absence of Words, contains 
works that are inspired by Maurer, Patricia Leonard's uh, work actually quotes from the Maurer Ninth and the Adagio from the Tenth. And the CD itself is named, uh, is, borrows the title from one of the works on the, on the disc, Wangji's Songs for Maurer in the Absence of Words. And she is a, a complete Maurer maniac. She loves Maurer. And it, even though she doesn't directly quote any Maurer music, you, you get that sense of, of romanticism and directness in her music. Another recording that, that the New York Piano Quartet did last year for me was music of Josef Marx and Eric Wolfgang Korngold. And what you're going to hear now is the fourth movement of Korngold's Suite for Two Violins, Cello and Piano.
Korngold, of course, was the father of the modern uh, film soundtrack. But you can also hear some definite uh, similarities to Mahler. As a late, it's a late. It sounds like variations on a late Mahler theme, which you can't quite remember which. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a perfectly marvelous piece, and they play it with such love. It's really a treat to hear that. This was uh, this work, this particular quartet, the suite was uh, part of a very fruitful partnership that Korngold had with uh, the great uh, pianist Wittgenstein, who lost his right hand in World War. World War I, and commissioned many major composers to write works for piano left hand. And this, I think, was the second of three pieces that Wittgenstein commissioned from Korngold. The thing that strikes me about this is not just the similarity to Mahler, but you can almost hear the portents of the big love themes from from Korngold's uh, film scores in that particular movement. And the members of the New York Piano Quartet are uh, all associated with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Elmira Darvarova, the violinist, was their first female concertmaster. Uh, the second violinist and violist uh, on the other pieces is Ron Carbone. Uh, the cellist is Samuel McGill, and the pianist is Linda Hall, who is a phenomenal accompanist. The other corn, the, the other corn gold uh, Wittgenstein piece I know, of course, is the Left Hand Piano Concerto, mm-hmm. which has. For whatever reasons, not not had the prominence it should. I was surprised that given you know given people's uh, affection for uh, post-romantic uh, music, that that and and also the Franz Schmidt uh, left-hand variations, the concertante, concertante variations on the theme by Beethoven, uh, haven't had a little a little more popularity. Well, I think part of the problem is that Wittgenstein was very, very proprietary about those works up until his death. He wouldn't let anyone else. Oh, do well, that. the the Hindemith Piano Concerto, the Klaviermusik, mm-hmm. uh, only, only surfaced in, uh, at, you know, fortuitously in in a in a in a barn somewhere in Pennsylvania <laughs> a few years ago, and Leon Fleischer, of course, as the as the doyen of of uh, left-handed pianists. Uh, at one point, uh, uh, managed to uh, get get to that. And that hasn't stuck either, which is too bad because it's very good in the middle of its period. And uh, the, the Prokofiev Piano Concerto was had a left-hand concerto number four has had a little more currency, but that's because it's Prokofiev, I suppose. It's too bad. Mm-hmm. In an earlier life, I managed a number of record labels on top of my other responsibilities at, at RCA. I was managing a number of the imported distributed labels, including Deutsche Harmonia Mundi, whose focus was on uh, so-called authentic uh, Baroque performances. And I'd like to play a track from uh, a newly released recording featuring violinist Almira Darvarova with one of the great virtuoso string players of our time, although many of your listeners may not be familiar with his recordings, and that's double bassist Gary Carr. Uh, the continuo player is Harmon Lewis, who has had, I believe, over a 40-year artistic partnership with Gary. Um, Gary's approach to Baroque uh, repertoire is not exactly what you would call scholarly, and I'd like to play the uh, one of the... Uh, Excuse me for a moment. One of the great things about getting old is I occasionally need to actually put on my reading glasses. Uh, <clears throat> is uh, Well, we're going to hear one of the Allegros from uh, Handel's Sonata in G Minor, Opus 2, Number 8.
When I was a student at uh, the Hart School at the University of Hartford, uh, Gary was one of the most influential teachers there. He uh, he was getting some of the finest young double bassists in the country and, tur- and just turning out amazing players. And his approach to his approach to playing most repertoire is sure the scholars can do what they want, but just go with the music, search for your inner voice, search for your inner cantabile. And throughout the recordings that that uh, that are on this recording, which are uh, trio sonatas of Handel and uh, duos for which were originally written for two violins and are here played by violin and double bass um, by Barthelemon, uh, you you can hear that. There's more than one way to skin a Baroque cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that comes to the end of our program. Uh, I thank you all, Jean Gadet, Sibylla Werner, and, and Joel Lazar, for being with us to sample some of these new recordings that Jean has, has come up with. Now, just by way of, of information for the audience, uh, the set of Mahler recordings, the first volume... Right, will be out about when? Within the next two months. It will be available for download. We are planning on the release of the compact discs in the autumn, probably a little bit after Labor Day uh, in Europe, which means we have to get them over here by boat, which means they'll be available probably in mid-October. And I will be taking advance orders on the Orlicht uh, audiovisual website u r l i c h t dash a v dot com orlicht dash a v dot com. It will be available for pre-order starting this Wednesday. And the last four excerpts we heard on the Orlicht labels. Those are available. You can uh, go to orlicht dash a v dot com and click on the links to buy them at uh, uh, to either download them. The download. I keep the price on downloads uh, pretty reasonable. It, uh, a full album costs usually a dollar or two less than it would cost to download from Amazon, and the sound quality is a whole heck of a lot better. So thank you, all of you, uh, for being with us. Uh, and I hope you've enjoyed the program. And uh, until next time, this is Lou Smoley for Interpreting Classical Music. <laughs>